Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. is democracy now. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Phase down but not phase out. The UN climate summit in Dubai has ended with nations pledging to transition away from fossil fuels. But critics say the deal's filled with a litany of loopholes that'll undermine efforts to combat the climate crisis. We'll go to Dubai for the latest. Then the United Nations General Assembly votes overwhelmingly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The United States joined Israel and just eight other nations opposing the ceasefire. In an exclusive interview, we'll speak to a Palestinian U.N. diplomat whose recent remarks on Israel went viral. Every person, according to Israel, falls into one of these three categories. A child, a journalist, a doctor, a U.N. staff, a newborn baby in an incubator. And so, according to Israel, it can kill them and then have the audacity to come to this room and tell the world with a straight face, we are acting in accordance with international law. We'll speak with Palestinian diplomat Nada Tarbush, then to Texas Congress member Greg Kassar, as President Biden appears to be caving to Republican demands for hardline border measures in exchange for funding the war in Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, witnesses say Israeli soldiers shot displaced people at point-blank range after they raided Shadia Abu Ghazala school in the northern Al-Fallujah area. According to Al Jazeera, newborn babies were reportedly among the victims. Heavy bombardment continues throughout the Gaza Strip, including in Rafah and Khan Yunis, where homes, businesses and schools were leveled in Israeli attacks. In Rafah, resident Mohammed Obeid joined rescue efforts Tuesday, searching for the rubble of a destroyed building that was attacked by Israeli rocket fire, killing at least four children. Whoever is left will battle with hunger, a battle of thirst, a survival battle in every sense of the word. There is no electricity, no fuel, no water, no medicine. Even the hospitals are suffering in dire need. Even first aid kits are not present in the hospitals. The situation is disastrous in every sense of the word. We're not interested in what is said, a truce or no truce, because we're busy with the daily survival battle, with the water supply, either fit or unfit for drinking, electricity, medicine, fuel. The humanitarian situation is harder than the war with the rockets. 
At the Kamal Adwan Hospital in Gaza City, a doctor says over 70 medical staff were taken by Israeli forces during a raid of the hospital earlier this week. Meanwhile, Save the Children announced a staffer and his family were killed by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza. Sama Aweda was 39 years old and the father of four young children aged 2 to 12 years old. This comes as Israeli military raids continue in Jenin, in the occupied West Bank, killing at least six people Tuesday. In East Jerusalem, Israeli forces bulldozed a Palestinian residential building that housed 30 people. Haaretz's report about a telegram channel said to be managed by the Israeli Defense Forces has provoked horror and comparisons to the Abu Ghraib military prison in Iraq. The channel, launched shortly after the start of the Israeli assault, is called 72 Virgins Uncensored, and posts graphic videos and photos showing the killing and torture of Palestinians. The images are usually accompanied by racist texts such as exterminating the roaches and joyful emojis. The U.N. General Assembly Tuesday voted overwhelmingly to call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. 153 U.N. members approved the resolution. 23 abstained, just 10, including the United States, voted no. Though non-binding, the U.N. vote is another indication of the mounting isolation of the U.S. as it continues to support Israel's assault, which has killed at least 18,000 Palestinians in a little over two months. Australia, which abstained from voting for the General Assembly ceasefire resolution in October, is one of the latest U.S. allies to split with Biden administration's position. This is Australia's foreign minister, Penny Wong. Australia, alongside 152 other countries, was among the countries which voted in favour. In doing so, we joined Canada, New Zealand, Japan, France and India and many other countries. And in doing so, we have said Israel must respect international humanitarian law. Separately, President Biden delivered his sharpest criticism yet of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, saying at a donor event, the Israeli leader, quote, has to change and that Israel is losing international support, citing its indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. Indiscriminate bombardment is a war crime. Biden's meeting at the White House today with families of U.S. hostages abducted by Hamas on October 7th. For the first time ever, the U.N. climate summit ended with a global agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. The deal was announced earlier today in Dubai as negotiations went into overtime and hailed as historic by the COP28 president, the head of the UAE oil company, Sultan al-Jaber. While the agreement was welcomed as a step forward, climate activists and nations worst hit by the climate catastrophe warned it doesn't go nearly far enough. And Rasmussen of the Alliance of Small Island States called out fellow delegates for passing the agreement, while representatives from the 39 states and her coalition were not in attendance, noted some of the deal's weaknesses. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual, when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. 
We'll go to Dubai for the latest on this new agreement that says phase down, not phase out fossil fuels. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ended his high-stakes day in Washington, D.C. Tuesday with little progress on securing additional war funding. President Biden vowed the U.S. would support Ukraine, quote, as long as we can, unquote, and urged Congress to pass his spending request of over $100 billion, which also includes funding for Israel, Taiwan, and further militarization of the U.S. border. Congress needs to pass a supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break a holiday recess, before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. House Speaker Mike Johnson has tied continued Ukraine aid to hardline border requests that have been rejected by Democrats. But reports have emerged the Biden administration is considering yielding to Republican demands in exchange for the funding. These include expanded immigration detention and deportations and a new border authority to expel migrants without due process. Meanwhile, House Republicans are expected to vote today on a resolution to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. In Russia, prominent dissident and Marxist theorist Boris Kogorlitsky has been released from jail. He was detained in July and accused of justifying terrorism for comments he made about the war in Ukraine. His arrest was met with international condemnation. A court this week found him guilty and fined him the equivalent of $6,600, but allowed him to walk free. Prosecutors had been seeking a five-year prison term. To see our interview with Boris Kogolitsky in December of last year, go to democracynow.org. In Poland, Donald Tusk was sworn in today as the new prime minister, putting an end to eight years of right-wing nationalist rule. In a speech Tuesday, Tusk, the former European Council president, expressed unwavering support for Ukraine against Russia's invasion and vowed to usher in smoother relations with the European Union. Poland is and will be a key, strong, sovereign link of the North Atlantic Alliance. That Poland will be a loyal, stable ally to the United States, confident in its reasons, confident in its strength and importance. That Poland will regain the position of leader of the European Union. Hours before lawmakers voted Tuesday to confirm Tusk and his government, an extreme right lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out the candles on the Polish parliament's Hanukkah menorah, sparking widespread outrage in Poland and beyond. India's Supreme Court upheld a 2019 move by the government revoking special status for Indian-administered Kashmir. The disputed Muslim-majority region previously enjoyed a certain level of autonomy, but the government of Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi scrapped Article 370 four years ago in order to bring Jammu and Kashmir further under the central government's control. Pakistan categorically rejected the ruling from India. This is the caretaker Pakistani Foreign Minister Jalila Bastilani. The final disposition of Jammu and Kashmir is to be made in accordance with the relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions and in accordance with the aspirations of the Kashmiri people. India has no right to make unilateral decisions on the status of this disputed territory against the will of the Kashmiri people.
and Pakistan. And the Arizona Supreme Court heard arguments Tuesday over whether a Civil War-era near-total abortion ban should be reinstated, overriding the current 15-week abortion ban. This is Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays. This specific case is about the need to harmonize Arizona statutes to ensure that women aren't saddled with an 1864 law that was passed before Arizona was a state, before women had the right to vote, and while the Civil War was still raging. After Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, some Arizona counties reverted to the 1864 law, which remained on the books but was not enforced since Roe passed in 1973. The so-called zombie ban does not make exceptions for rape or incest and also bars anyone from assisting a pregnant person in getting abortion care. Meanwhile, the New Mexico Supreme Court is hearing arguments today over whether local governments can impose their own abortion bans, even as the procedure remains legal in New Mexico. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The U.N. climate summit in Dubai has ended with nations pledging to transition away from fossil fuels. But critics say the deal is filled with loopholes that will undermine efforts to combat the climate crisis. The final text fails to explicitly call for a phase out of fossil fuels, language sought by over 100 countries. Instead, one key passage of the deal reads, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science, unquote. The COP28 president, Sultan al-Jaber, who is the head of ADNOC, that's the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, described the deal as historic. We have confronted realities and we have set the world in the right direction. We have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions, bridges the gap on adaptation, reimagines global finance and delivers on loss and damage. COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber declared consensus on the final document early today, even though a grouping of 39 island nations known as OASIS, that's the uh, Alliance of Small Island States, was not even in the room. The Samoan negotiator Anras Musin, who is the chair of AOSIS, criticize the final text. seems that you just gathered the decisions and the small island developing states were not in the room. Uh, we were working hard to coordinate the 39 uh, small island states, developing states that are disproportionately affected by climate change. And so we were delayed in arriving here. The questions we have considered as the alliance of small island states is whether they are enough. 
Zoning in on paragraph 26 and 29 of this, of this decision, we have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Critics have called out the allowance of ill-defined transitional fuels as a major loophole of the deal, which also opens the door to false technological solutions, they say, to combat the climate crisis. African activists said the deal does not provide sufficient mechanisms or funding from wealthy, high-polluting countries like the U.S. and European nations for poorer nations to shift away from fossil fuels. Joining us now from Dubai, where we just came from, at the site of the COP28, is Assad Raymond, the executive director of War on Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. Um, Assad, welcome back to Democracy Now! As we see you now, as the final document uh, has been accepted, can you respond to overall what's said and explicitly your concerns? Uh, welcome. First of all, thank you, uh, Amy. Uh, you're right, the document has been accepted and uh, there has been a lot of attention on the words around the fossil fuel and whether this would signal the end of the era of deadly fossil fuels. And unfortunately, whilst the word is there, their signal is clearly not. They're, what we've seen is a lot of very weak text there, lots of loopholes. You mentioned the transition fuels. I mean, quite incredibly, they include one of the most polluting fossil fuels, gas, as a transition fuel. They, the, the, none of the transition is funded, so the, the scale of the transition, particularly for developing countries, will be unable to be met. And there are loopholes in terms of so much uh, in risky technologies, dangerous and unproven technologies, to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, if you're an oil and gas baron and CEO, you must be rubbing your hands with glee. This is continuing to be a license to pollute. And whilst uh, the, wor the words on the text might be applauded, the reality is you can't uh, fool science and you can't fool the reality that we actually need to transition fairly and equitably and speed away from fossil fuels, but also addressing the real challenges many developing countries have with, with poverty and particularly with energy poverty as well. And Asad, I'm wondering if you could comment on the, uh, the presence and influence of industry trade groups, think tanks and public relations agencies with a track record of climate denialism uh, participating in this summit. So uh, often anybody who comes to these climate negotiations would be surprised at probably how big a trade fair sits alongside the actual negotiations where companies and CEOs and lobbyists uh, peddle their uh, uh, influence both on governments and negotiators but also striking deals with each other. But the reality is, of course, it's not just here in Dubai that those lobbyists are at work. They're also at work in the capitals in Washington, in London, in Brussels. And that's why many 
negotiators, particularly from developing countries and climate justice groups, looked aghast at the fact that the European Union, the United States and the United Kingdom were all making speeches saying the 1.5 degrees is the North Star, their commitment to tackle fossil fuels, whilst, of course, being responsible for half, over half of all new fossil fuel expansion all around the world. People know the reality that what's being said here is empty words and reality on the back of a uh, back home is that an expansion of those fossil fuels. So there's a lack of trust uh, that exists here. People have realised that over decades there's been plenty of broken promises, whether it's on finance, whether it's on the United States saying we don't want to even, even discuss the fact that we have not met our previous pledge to cut our emissions. Uh, what's happening here in these negotiations is really a ripping out and gutting out of the responsibility of rich countries who've caused most of this problem and shifting the responsibility to developing countries. And that's both in the interests of these big private companies because the few mentions that there are about climate finance are all around private capital. And private capital is about making profit. And what they're proposing is that governments who are deeply in debt, who have got a small public uh, fiscal space, commit their money, public money, to basically underwrite private corporations' ability to be able to make profit. And where they want to make profit, of course, is not in actually helping poorer people be able to adapt to the realities of climate violence or adapt to the fact that we're facing huge economic, social and control, cultural losses from killer floods, fires and famines. What they want to do is take control of, little, of what little remains of these countries' energy systems and other public systems. And what about this whole issue of the, uh, of the uh, most polluting nations assisting the developing uh, the developing world, the global south, in dealing with uh, the climate uh, catastrophe? Well, that's been, the, I suppose, the big fissure that's been running through all of these climate negotiations for the last 28 years. It's whether rich countries, you know, still overwhelmingly are responsible for the majority of the emissions that are in the atmosphere. And per capita, I, how much each of us can uh, emit as, cit as, as citizens, that's overwhelmingly still, you know, 11% of the population is in the global north. They're overwhelmingly responsible for the majority of emissions in the atmosphere. Would those countries not only cut their own emissions, but provide support in the form of finance and technology? Now, uh, a promise was made back in 2009 for $100 billion. That hasn't been met. There's a big discussion going to have to take place next year, whether climate finance is going to be on the base of need. Um, and a recognition that we're really talking about is not just hundreds of millions, but of course billions and up to trillions. And what was really striking at the beginning of these negotiations was that the United States pledged merely a few million into the loss and damage fund, while of course uh, it didn't escape people that it was happy to make requests to Congress for hundreds of billions for bombs and bullets uh, for wars all around the world. So there's a disconnect between the reality of what's happening on the need, the crisis developing countries face, not just from climate, but, but from being trapped in unjust debt repayments, from a broken and rigged economic system, from having their uh, resources being exploited, but also the reality that you know rich countries who've grown wealthiest are simply turning their back now, this requires us everybody to take action, but developing countries can only act if they're given the support. 
This is U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry speaking earlier today at the closing session of the U.N. Climate Summit. The fact is that this document sends very strong messages to the world. First, the document highlights that we have to adhere to keeping 1.5 degrees within reach. That is the North Star. And we, therefore, must do those things necessary to keep the 1.5, everything we can to achieve this goal. That's John Kerry. Uh, Asad Raymond, if you can respond and also talk about, I think Gore said on the um, uh, the draft final text, this is an agreement by and for petrostates. Uh, next year, uh, it's going to be in Baku and another petrostate in Azerbaijan. Um, and yet, can you talk about why this particular U.N. climate summit in the UAE was so important? Some are more important than others. Well, well and the reason why this in, uh, summit was very, very important was... Uh, back when the Paris Agreement was signed by every country in the world, everybody recognised that the promises that were being made, by, particularly by developed countries, were so low that they were not going to keep us below the 1.5 degree. The threshold and the guardrail, which we know and the climate scientists have told us, we begin to face runaway climate catastrophe. And no matter what we do, the impacts get deeper, faster, more violent and affect more people. Now, after five years, we're meant to assess how much progress countries have made, how much have they cut their emissions, how much finance have they provided, how much support have they given to countries to be able to adapt to the fact that climate change is now happening much faster than we thought, with much more severity than we thought. And that conversation is the global stock take. And what we've seen here actually is a document with the fingerprints of the United States, the UK and the European Union, because it, what it talks about is only about cutting emissions, but not about responsibility. So the idea of fairness is going. The idea of uh, uh, providing climate finance, public climate finance, that is really desperately needed, is being frittered away. Instead, the only mentions of finance are about private capital and, and a push to make developing countries have what they call an enabling environment. Now we have seen in real life what that enabling environment looks like. We've seen it in Sri Lanka, we've seen it in Pakistan, other countries which have faced these crises of both debt and climate. And what it means is you're lowering your environmental standards, you lower your workers' rights standards, you make your economy much more attractive to private capital. That private capital needs to make profit. And what private capital wants is guarantees that it will make that profit. And so now the responsibility is falling on developing countries to guarantee that profit. It's utter madness. Um, and, and so these, this is just one part of actually what was being negotiated here. We're meant to also negotiate a, a goal on adaptation. Again, how would, will countries, particularly in the global south or on the, on the forefront of climate impacts, how will they be able to adapt? Will they be provided with technology and support? Now, particularly the group of African countries which have been severely impacted wanted real concrete goals. They wanted a goal on finance, a goal on technology. How could they begin to plan? 
developed countries have all said we don't want any of that discussion. There will be no discussion about actual concrete action. And incredibly, the one window of hope that there is, is of course that we know that if we are able to transition away from fossil fuels, if we are able to transition from our broken food system and from this unequal economic system, we actually will make people's lives better, fairer, more just, not just in the global south, but also in the global north, where many, many people are struggling to make ends meet, where they can't feed their families or heat their homes. And that is called the just transition pathway. But again there, the United States doesn't want any concrete conversation, just wants talk shops. Sandra, I mean, we just have a minute, and I wanted to end by asking you about what you're wearing. You've got a lanyard on that's the colors of the Palestinian flag, and you've got a pin that is a pin of a watermelon, um, the colors of the Palestinian flag. We last saw you on Friday when you were holding a news conference saying um, you are not allowed to protest about Gaza or say issue, say have signs that said ceasefire now. Uh, yet on Saturday, there was major demonstrations there that you were a part of. Explain um the issue uh, that you tried to raise, the historic nature of what you did during this U.N. climate summit, from Israel's bombardment of Gaza to the mentioning of prisoners, political prisoners in the UAE itself. Well, the climate justice movement have always recognised that climate, the climate struggle is not about simply about carbon. It is about these interwoven issues of justice, and we are fundamentally a justice movement. And, and what binds this movement together is the idea of solidarity for those on the front lines of crisis, whether they're indigenous uh, uh, movements, whether it's anti-racist and black communities in the United States fighting around for Black Lives Matter, to the Palestinian people in its we're in a region where a few hundred miles away, you know, a people are facing ethnic cleansing, uh, indiscriminate bombing, and, and of course many of our colleagues and partners are there. In this place, huge restrictions were put on us about whether we could even make the call about ceasefire now, whether we could raise the question of Palestine. But I have to say, the power of our movements organising here said we refuse. We absolutely will stand up on Palestine. We'll make that call for ceasefire now. We're going to say with a very, very strong voice that there is no climate justice without human rights. And just as we did in Egypt when we raised the issue of political prisoners there, we raised the issue of political prisoners here in the UAE as well. Ultimately, this is a struggle about justice and about an unequal and an unjust world where the powerful can do what they want against the powerless. And what is shocking was yesterday, John Kerry said in trying to push through this, uh, this text, he said, we, are, we, are, um, we have never been in a position where the decisions we make will have life or death impact. All of us gasped since the United States last week vetoed a resolution that would have stopped the killing in Gaza. This is where politicians and our, and our governments are so uh, disconnected from the demands and realities of ordinary people. Asad Raymond, we want to thank you for being with us. Executive Director of War on Want, lead spokesperson from the Climate Justice Coalition, speaking to us from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. 
Coming up, as the U.N. General Assembly votes overwhelmingly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, we bring you an exclusive. We'll speak with a Palestinian U.N. diplomat whose recent remarks in Geneva on Israel went viral. Stay with us. Lament for a Dying Ocean by Small Island Big Song featuring Putad. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. In Tuesday's vote, 153 nations approved the resolution, 23 abstained, just 10, including the U.S. and Israel, voted no. Though non-binding, the U.N. vote is another indication of the mounting isolation of the United States as it continues to support Israel's assault, which has killed over 18,000 Palestinians in a little over two months. The vote came just days after the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. Meanwhile, President Biden's delivered his sharpest criticism yet of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. During a donor event in Washington, D.C., Biden criticized what he called Israel's, quote, indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. In a moment, we'll be joined by the Palestinian U.N. diplomat Nada Tarbush. But first, let's turn to a speech she gave in November at the U.N. in Geneva. It went viral. Israel said something that should make all of you shudder. It effectively said, I can kill any and every person in Gaza. The 2.3 million people in Gaza are either terrorists or terrorist sympathizers or human shields and are therefore legitimate targets. Every person, according to Israel, falls into one of these three categories. A child, a journalist, a doctor, a UN staff, a newborn baby in an incubator. And so, according to Israel, it can kill them and then have the audacity to come to this room and tell the world with a straight face, we are acting in accordance with international law. The death of each of the over 11,350 people killed over the past month, be it children, journalists, UN staff, the sick, the elderly, according to Israel, was justified. Think about that for a moment and let it give you pause. Anyone espousing this warped logic has no shred of humanity, no sense of morality, and no knowledge of legality. But guess what? 
Your carpet explanation for carpet bombing will not fly. People are not fools. The people in this room are seasoned diplomats who are well-read, have a knowledge of history, and many of whom have seen your government make the same arguments during your six previous military aggressions on Gaza in the past 15 years. They have seen you resort to collective punishment, targeting of Palestinian children, journalists, medical staff, aid workers, before. They have seen you forcibly transfer our communities, colonize our lands, demolish our homes, and evict families from their own properties since the 7th of October and for the 75 years that preceded it. That was Palestinian UN diplomat Nada Tarbush speaking November 17th, almost a month ago. At the time, the death toll in Gaza from Israel's assault was about 11,000. Today, it's over 18,600. Nada Tarbush joins us now in an exclusive interview from Geneva, where she serves as counselor to the permanent observer mission of the state of Palestine to the United Nations in Geneva. I'm wondering, uh, Nada Tarbush, if you can start off by responding to the UNGA, the UN General Assembly's overwhelming call, even if it is symbolic, for a Gaza ceasefire in response to the U.S. vetoing in the U.N. Security Council um, on Friday the ceasefire call, at the same time that it looks like President Biden is intensifying his criticism of Netanyahu and the Israeli bombardment, um, criticizing indiscriminate bombing. If you can just take that on. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me, Amy. So with regard to the UNGA vote, what I'd like to first say is to put it in context for the audience. This resolution was brought to the General Assembly following the United States' veto on the, a resolution at the Security Council last Friday, which had called for an immediate ceasefire. And so states invoked tools that are available in the United Nations to whenever the Security Council is deadlocked to take the discussion to the General Assembly and on a matter of international peace and security. So this is what happened. And the vote was unsurprisingly, overwhelmingly for an immediate ceasefire. Now, the significance of this vote was that not only is it showing that the support that Israel had from many Western states especially for its military assault on Gaza is eroding. And even staunch supporters of Israel like Australia and like Canada are now saying we need a ceasefire. And so what this shows is that Israel is isolated, the United States is isolated. The General Assembly, which is the world's parliament and which is the most democratic organ in the United Nations, has said, we overwhelmingly want an immediate ceasefire. Now, at the same time, and this is where sometimes you feel there's a parallel reality, you hear the United States voting against that, you see the United States voting against that resolution and at the same time um, words from the Biden administration about Israeli indiscriminate bombing. So my comment on that would be that we believe in actions 
and not words when it comes to the U.S. government. I have he heard words in the U.N. that anyone would have thought were a good thing for the Americans to say, like, we care about Palestinian civilians, but this will not fly as long as we see the United States sending military aid, billions in do of dollars in military aid using Americans' taxpayer money, which it could have used on other things like homelessness and health care, and sending that aid to help Israel commit a genocide. So I'm not convinced that the Biden administration uh, has changed course. It is still voting against a ceasefire, vetoing Security Council resolutions, sending aid, and giving Israel all the diplomatic and political cover that it needs. And Nada Tarbush, I wanted to ask you, uh, before October 7th, both Israel and the United States uh, were comfortably believed that the issue of uh, Palestine uh, had been forgotten by the rest of the world. I'm wondering your sense of uh, how the world has rallied in the recent two months uh, in support of the Palestinian cause. I would say that the world has never forgotten Palestine, unless by the world we mean the powerful militarized states like the United States and other European states or um, uh, other states from the global north, let's say. The international community has year after year said, called for a solution, called for an end to occupation, for an end to apartheid, an end to the settlement colonization project that we see in the West Bank. And so it is only a handful of powerful states that have been trying to get Palestine off the agenda and blocking any avenue to push for the rights of the Palestinian people under international law. Now, could you talk as well about your own family history as it relates to Palestine? Your family fled in 1948 because in your powerful uh, a speech, uh, you also talked about how relations between uh, Jews and, Palest and Palestinians were before the creation of Israel. Yes, absolutely. My family um, are refugees from 1948. My father was from a village near Jerusalem, which is one of the more than 450 villages that were completely destroyed during the Nakba, um, which is the, the catastrophic events that led to mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and to the most protracted refugee crisis in the world. Um, and my mother also is from a city that became part of Israel after uh, 1948. The Palestine's history is one of diversity. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious land, historically, which has hosted and welcomed all faiths, which has welcomed people of various ethnicities. It has always been a culturally diverse mosaic. And so this is why um, it is not surprising to me that many people don't see that this land can be transformed into an ethnocracy, into a state which is only for one people. 
And you have seen, even in the early days of Zionism, you had many Jewish intellectuals like Albert Einstein, Hannah Arendt, Sigmund Freud, and others who were against the idea of an exclusively Jewish state in the historical land of Palestine. They saw that that would cause issues like ethnic cleansing, like um, not respecting and indeed violating the rights of the indigenous inhabitants. In your speech that you gave at the UN in Geneva, you referred to these remarks in March by Israel's far-right West Bank settler finance minister, Bezalel Shmotrik. There is no such thing as a Palestinian. There is no such thing as a Palestinian people. Do you know who is Palestinian? I am Palestinian. So that is the finance minister, part of Netanyahu's government, Shmotrik, saying there's no such thing as a Palestinian. And if for people, in case you had any trouble hearing this, I am a Palestinian, he said. I was wondering if you can respond. Yes, I can. This is, again, not a surprising narrative. It is a narrative that we have been hearing for decades, which is that Israel does not want a Palestinian state. Golda Meir, uh, a, a, a former Israeli prime minister, said that there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. Palestinians have been dehumanized since the creation of Israel and even before. Um, and, you know, in order to try and justify this settler colonial project. And there was the myth of a land without a people for a people without a land. But there were people on this land, and they are the Palestinian people. And so for us to hear these kind of racist and colonialist slogans is consistent with what Israel has been doing in terms of action throughout these years, which is to try and get rid of the maximum of Palestinian inhabitants from Palestine, from the West Bank, from Gaza, and to try and replace them with Israeli settlers. Um, and so, so, you know, they're just saying explicitly what they have been doing. And I think that in Gaza now, what we are seeing is the continuation of this policy of mass ethnic cleansing, of forced displacement, of trying to get rid of the Palestinian population in order to take over the land. You also and know, so, in, uh, you know, even um, the Biden, uh, please. You, you also note in your speech in September that Netanyahu held up a map on what he called the new Middle East that did not show Palestine during his speech, the United Nations General Assembly. Um, it did not show the West Bank, East Jerusalem or Gaza. Explain what he's putting forward. And then President Biden now saying um, to this group of donors that um, he's criticizing Netanyahu, saying that um, he is doing this in Gaza because he doesn't want a Palestinian, a two state solution. Indeed, yes. The, so, again, this is not the first time that the Israelis have shown maps. Um, which completely delete the West Bank and Gaza and incorporate them into Israel and call them Israel. I mean, this this has been done uh, consistently. Uh, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, 
as West Jerusalem and was um, and East Jerusalem were annexed. Uh, there are annexationist policies happening in the West Bank with the construction of settlements and the wall and the whole settler colonial infrastructure. And in Gaza, uh, this is a, a similar project is underway. And Gaza and the West Bank have been occupied for 56 years. Palestinian dispossession has taken place for 75 years. It is an ongoing Nakba. It is a continuation of mass ethnic cleansing and annexationist policies. Now, the problem with them uh, formally annexing these lands is that they would have to give the right to vote to the Palestinians, which whose land they would be annexing. So instead, they try to get rid of the Palestinians before annexing the land. But the plan has been clear, and it is a plan to take over what remains of Palestine, which is very little, what remains of historic Palestine. The West Bank and Gaza constitute 22% of historic Palestine. With the settlements, this has reduced dramatically, um, and they're trying to take over whatever little bits are left. Well, I want to thank you for being with us, Nada Tarbush, Counselor to the Permanent Observer Mission of the State of Palestine to the United Nations in Geneva. This is her first broadcast interview since the video went viral of her U.N. address on Israel's bombardment of Gaza that she gave in Geneva. Coming up, we'll speak with Texas Congressmember Greg Kassar as President Biden appears to be caving to Republican demands for hardline border measures in exchange for funding for the war in Ukraine and beyond. Back in 20 seconds. Clouds, teardrops by Therese Sleiman and Yazim Ibrahim. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We look now at how President Biden appears to be caving to Republican demands for hardline border measures in exchange for funding for the war in Ukraine that also include a new crackdown on asylum seekers and immigrants nationwide. This is CBS reporter Camilo Montoya Galvez. These changes include a new authority that would allow border agents to summarily expel migrants back to Mexico or their home countries, no questions asked, without an asylum screening, very similar to the Title 42 pandemic policy that ended in May. They have also proposed mandatory detention for the migrants who would be allowed to make a case for asylum. And finally, they would be open to a nationwide expansion of something called expedited removal, which is a fast-tracked deportation process that is currently limited to the border region. As negotiations on Biden's emergency funding requests continue, we're joined from the Cannon Rotunda on Capitol Hill by Democratic Congressmember Greg Kassar of Texas. Our co-host Juan Gonzalez just joined Congressman Kassar for a congressional briefing Tuesday on U.S.-Latin America policy. 
Um, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, Congressmember Kassar, if you can first respond uh, to what's being negotiated at this point, progressive Democrats saying to President Biden, you not only have to negotiate with the Republicans, you have to negotiate with us, which includes you, uh, Congressmember Kassar. Good morning, Amy. Thanks so much for having me on. And it is a really scary time here on Capitol Hill where Republicans in the Senate are asking Democrats to cave in and hand them some of the worst changes to our immigration system in decades. Republicans and Democrats alike have both said that they support continued assistance to Ukraine, but the Republicans have held that hostage and have said, first, you've got to throw immigrant families under the bus. And like you've described, this would mean actually closing legal pathways for migration here and accelerating the deportation and separation of immigrant families. And so in the mainstream media, this is often being reported as, well, are they going to trade border security for Ukraine money? This has nothing to do with changing or improving a situation at the border. What the Republicans are demanding is making it less easy to legally migrate and therefore fuel more irregular migration. What they're talking about is punishing families that are already in our cities and communities, dismantling the asylum system that we established after the enormous um, errors we made after World War II, turning refugees away. It is sick. And so what we're asking is for the Biden administration to stop encouraging these talks, asking Leader Schumer to just step in and say, if we want to debate Ukraine, we should debate Ukraine. But we shouldn't start throwing immigrant families under the bus. Next thing, they may ask for an abortion ban nationwide in exchange for something. Are they going to be asking for a ban on gay marriage next time? We just can't have Democrats doing the Republicans' dirty work here. And, Congressman, as we discussed at the briefing yesterday, the, the United States has spent over $330 billion the past, uh, the past 20 years on agencies that do border enforcement, and yet we have record numbers of people attempting to cross the border. Uh, what can be done to, uh, to get Congress to finally address the issue of a much more comprehensive reform of our immigration system? We have to actually want to improve the system for folks in the United States and for people migrating here. Unfortunately, the right wing wants to keep the system as broken as possible so that they can then complain about it. It's the classic case of the arsonists trying to blame the firefighters for the flames. And so in this case, Republican policy and frankly, even some conservative and uh, neoliberal democratic policy has only fueled greater challenges. Those policies are things like sanctions, imposing harsh sanctions in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, then forcing people who are starving in part because of our policies to migrate and then complaining about it. Instead, we should make sure that people, if they want to be able to stay at home, stay in their home countries that they can, and then open up legal pathways for migration. Instead, the Republican proposals we're dealing with actually what they mostly would help is cartel profits, because what they want to do is close legal pathways for migration, force people that we are helping starve have to move, oftentimes have to pay criminal organizations, and then the Republicans get to complain about it. It is a toxic brew that Democrats shouldn't be playing into. Instead, we should say, let's open up more legal pathways for people to migrate here. Let's open up the ability for folks to ask for parole and get on a plane and apply and come here and get a work permit quickly. That would relieve a lot of what you're seeing on the TV, Fox TV cameras on the border. 
and actually make things better for people in Latin America and in the United States. But instead, we insist on punishing Latin America, pushing people out of their home countries, and then not opening up legal pathways for them to migrate. Juan, I wanted to put this question to you. You and Congressmember Greg Kassar were part of a panel yesterday called 200 Years is Enough, Moving Past the Monroe Doctrine Toward a New Era in U.S.-Latin American Relations. Can you put this current uh, push at this moment, right, uh, because the House Speaker says they're going to go home at the end of the week if they don't get their way on border. Biden is desperate to get money for Ukraine. Um, and so we don't know at this point what's going to happen. McConnell says uh, there's no way they can do this before Christmas. But put this in that broader 200-year context. I mean, you wrote that incredible book that's now a textbook in so many college classes called Harvest of Empire. Um, talk about what, how this fits in with the Monroe Doctrine and what that was. Well, yes. Well, the Monroe Doctrine for 200 years has been the basic uh, policy that the United States has pursued in uh, in uh, the entire Western Hemisphere, but especially toward Latin America, telling uh, European and other colonial powers, you stay out of the Western Hemisphere. This is our backyard, in essence. And it's been used repeatedly uh, by uh, U.S. presidents and, and Congresses to, in, to invade uh, countries in Latin America, to foment uh, uh, clandestine or covert operations to remove leaders that uh, that weren't sufficiently obedient to the United States, and I think it's uh, and it's never really been re uh, re repealed or uh, uh, or, or uh, refuted uh, by uh, U.S. leaders. I mean, there was a small attempt by John Kerry during the Obama administration to claim it was uh, it was over, but President Trump. Uh, backtracked on that and went back to the, the the bullying of the United States and Latin America. And I'm wondering, uh, Congressman Kassar, your sense of the prospects for being able to have a new policy for Latin America uh, in the future. It's time for us to leave that 200-year Monroe Doctrine legacy behind us. And I think a small number of progressives who start to open up a window to a new relationship in Latin America are going to carve the path forward here. Because instead of spending our limited resources on things you've covered, Juan, overthrowing the government in Guatemala in the 50s, the invasion of Cuba, arming Contra rebels in Nicaragua, currently continuing to starve instead of feed people in places like Cuba and Venezuela, instead of engaging in that, that honestly doesn't help in Latin America and doesn't help us here. We can create a new partnership. I was just in Chile for uh, nearly the anniversary of us helping overthrow the Chilean government uh, of Allende back in the day. And part of the reason we did that is because we wanted to protect United States and Chilean elites in the copper industry. That was disastrous. So many people died. It helped no one. But instead, finally, we could have a conversation about how do we support democracy and support one another in rising authoritarianism? How, as we head towards a renewable and climate uh, more resilient future, they have instead the resources for us to create batteries. How do we create those together and make sure working class people in Chile and the United States benefit, not just big corporations? There is a real ability for us to work with Latin America to tackle the climate crisis, beat back authoritarianism, address migration, that would actually benefit our constituents and our communities. And I think folks would get reelected on that kind of work in Latin America rather than continued invasions.
And we just have 10 seconds. Do you think President Biden hears you? What do you think is going to happen, your prediction, Congressman? Uh, what I can tell you for sure is that you're going to see increased pressure coming from um, Hispanic, Black, and Asian members of Congress, progressive members of Congress. You're going to see us hosting press conferences, delivering letters, and saying we're going to be a no vote on this whole package. Congressmember Greg Kassar, Democrat from Texas, will also link to Tuesday's congressional briefing. 200 years is enough, moving past the Monroe Doctrine toward a new era in U.S.-Latin American relations. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!